This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. I have been complaining of late, uh, with justification, I think, that we, we, we shouldn't be doing current events shows all the time. I enjoy doing them very much, but we need to get back to our roots and talk to authors and uh, talk to people that make the news. And happily today, we're going to do a little of that. So let us get back to our roots, as it were, of what we founded the show to do and forsake current events, etc., for the next hour. Stories of ancient Rome can capture our imagination in ways other civilizations seldom manage. This is surely due, at least in part, to the many parallels between that empire and the sprawling entity of modern America. Ancient Rome is a place that often seems oddly familiar to us. Many of our institutions parallel Roman examples. The United States Senate comes to mind. But it is much more than that. Much of our culture owes a debt to Rome. Our language, philosophy, religion, architecture, and law all show Roman roots. To peer back at the men and women who shaped the Roman Empire is an exercise guaranteed to provide examples, both good and bad, we would do well to study. Author Barry Strauss is well qualified to cast such a look back in time. He is professor of history at Cornell, who has lived and studied in Italy, Greece, Israel, and Germany. Dr. Strauss has also visited many ancient sites, including those in Turkey, Britain, Croatia, Tunisia, Cyprus, and Jordan. Barry Strauss has, in fact, written or edited several books on ancient military history, including The Spartacus War and The Death of Caesar. His current book is Ten Caesars, Roman Emperors from Augustus to Constantine. A review of the triumphs and failures of the Caesars and those around them will contain lessons for us. One thing seems certain, these colorful men and women make for lively discussions. And to lead us into such a spirited review, we are pleased to be able to say, welcome to Radio Parallax, Barry Strauss. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. We're, we are glad to have you. I, I do hope as we begin you'll permit one tiny digression. Sure. We English speakers call them the Ten Caesars, but I understand that the Germans have kept the pronunciation correct in calling them Kaisers. Absolutely. Yeah, in fact, the plural would be uh, Kaiseres. So Kaiser Wilhelm is, has a heritage back to Julius. That's right. Yeah, it's, it's, it's pronounced the way, the, the way we think the ancients would have pronounced it. Will you start your first chapter on, uh, on Caesar Augustus? We're keen to discuss um, the man that's probably the most influential of the ancient Romans. But I'd yes. like to ask you to set that up by giving us a brief review of who's most surely the famous ancient Roman, Julius Caesar, and the Roman Republic that ended with him. Right. So uh, by the time that Caesar uh, became dictator in perpetuity in 44 B.C., the Roman Republic had been on the ropes for, for almost a century, for about 90 years. And um, there had been a series of crises of... Um, assassinations, of riots, uh, of civil wars, of judicial murders, of dictators, of revolutions, and attempts to turn back the water clock, as it were. Um, 
And in some ways, the Republic was doing just fine when when Caesar rose to supreme power. Um, you know, the Senate was still going strong. There were still elections. The people were still taking part. There were still very lively and vigorous debates. But looming over all of it was the fact that the Republic had not come to grips with what it meant to govern an empire of about 50 million people and had done very little to incorporate um, the elites of the empire, to say nothing of ordinary people, into uh, the power structure. In fact, it had done relatively little to include the elites of Italy into the power structure, and to a large extent, Rome was still governed by a very small number of families who considered themselves the nobility. Uh, These were families in and around the city of Rome, and it was pretty rare for someone from outside this charmed circle to rise to very high power. Um, And to me, that, that is a fundamental problem. The other fundamental problem was that the Republic had always, there had always been a connection between military service and citizenship, and the Republic had felt that in order to function, uh, the people who did military service also had to be the backbone of society, they had to be middle-class farmers. Well, all of that had broken down uh, generations before Caesar. The armies of the Republic were made up of penniless men um, who saw military service as a way to get rich, uh, and they were loyal not to the Republic so much as to their generals and their leaders who promised them wealth. So the two problems, the failure to get a wide base of support in the empire and the failure to have a citizenry that actually was committed to the Republic rather than to its its leaders, um, uh, spelled huge long-term problems for the Roman Republic. It's possible that the nobility, if they had been willing to make incremental changes, uh, if they'd been willing to make compromises, they might have been able to stay in power longer, but they weren't willing to make many compromises. It was all or nothing with them, and Caesar being not only very unscrupulous and selfish, but also immensely talented, was able to defeat the forces of the Republic and to conquer the entire Roman Empire, uh, and, as I said, to become dictator in perpetuity. So at the time of his assassination, the Ides of March 44 B.C., what was going to replace what the Romans had known was a huge question mark. How was Caesar going to um, come up with a new political system that would bring in the necessary changes, and how could he get the support of the nobility for this? He was himself a member of the nobility. Uh, He was sufficiently tradition-minded that it never occurred to him that he could wipe out the Roman nobility and start from scratch. Um, And he also, and probably rightly, considered that impractical, because the Roman nobility represented the know-how of how to uh, govern the empire, how to run the military, um, it just wasn't a practical matter to to get rid of them. So that's where things stood when Caesar was assassinated. That era of transition between the Republican Empire, it seems mm-hmm. to fascinate historians and Hollywood movie makers alike. Absolutely. Uh, Octavian going head-to-head with Mark Antony, Cleopatra taking yeah. up with Julius yeah. Caesar, and then Antony. It's quite, yeah. quite the soap opera, but you note that how, how it is that young Octavian turns himself into Caesar Augustus has to be considered the most remarkable aspect of that era. It really is. 
remarkable. I mean, he's born Gaius Octavius. His father is the head of a uh, important local family in a town about 25 miles south of Rome, but he's not a member of the nobility. He marries into the nobility. He marries Julius Caesar's niece, and his children are you know, related to the Roman nobility on the mother's side. The Romans considered the father's side to be infinitely more important. Um, but Caesar didn't have any legitimate Roman children, um, not after his daughter died in uh, 10 years before the Ides of March, 54 B.C. And so he um, takes an interest in young Gaius Octavius, and um, a few months before Caesar's assassinated, he changes his will to leave most of his estate to the kid and to offer him posthumous adoption as his son. Uh, this is very unusual. The Romans rarely, if ever, do posthumous adoption. Uh-huh. Um, but Caesar's not one for um, for sticking to the rules. <laughs> and uh, when Caesar's assassinated, you know he's been grooming Gaius Octavius. Uh, the kid is in what's now Albania, in a big Roman military base on the other side of the Adriatic Sea. Caesar's planning a huge new military expedition to conquer what is today Romania and Iraq. He comes back to Italy and finds out about his inheritance and decides that he will accept his inheritance. At the age of 18, he will go from being Gaius Octavius to being uh, Gaius Julius Caesar. Uh, Technically, according to Roman custom, he'd be Gaius Julius Caesar Octavianus, and that's why Many historians today call him Octavian, mm-hmm. but he never accepted that name. He always said, call me Caesar. <laughs> and within a few months, this kid, who's uh-huh. now 19, goes to the Roman Forum and standing in front of a statue of uh, his now adoptive father, Julius Caesar, yeah. he says, I intend to win every bit as much honor um, and public office as my father had. And I think a lot of people thought, yeah, right, tell me another one, uh, kid. Um, especially with men like Mark Antony in the wings who were, you know, in the prime of life and very accomplished and had the loyalty of their soldiers. But uh, the kid was a genius, not so much a military genius, but he certainly was a strategic genius as a political genius. Um, he was extraordinary judge of character and amazing in getting people to work for him um, and to help him on the way up. Both um, someone like uh, Marcus Agrippa, who is a boyhood friend. Marcus Agrippa was not from the Roman nobility. He was an Etruscan, from what is today Tuscany, and he was a brilliant general, and he was always loyal to Octavian. And also within his own family, Octavian used his sister, Octavia, uh, to help him on the way up. Um, she's conveniently widowed at the same time that Mark Antony is widowed, and Octavian marries his sister Octavia off to Antony to um, be a intermediary, a go-between between the two of them. Um, it is the ultimate way of keeping your friends close and your enemies even closer, okay. having your sister marry one of those enemies. And um, it doesn't work out in the end, uh, but the differences between Antony and uh, Octavian are just too great, and Antony goes over to Cleopatra, but it's probably not because he's more in love with Cleopatra than with Octavia, but rather that he sees his way to power. He sees a clearer path to power with 
Cleopatra than he does with Octavia. So he, he ultimately divorces her, and at that point, war between Antony and Octavian for control of the Roman world. Well, that's very much in the cards. I do want to note, just for the benefit of our listeners, that you include some family trees in your discussions, and which is very helpful, given these incestuous relations, divorces, adoptions, blah, blah, blah. It's a, some visual aids are helpful. Thank you. Game of Thrones has nothing on this story, that's for sure. <laughs> well, uh, Augustus rules for 45 years, and he rules well. And you, and he, you noted you know, he had some good help at home, Agrippa. His wife, Livia, you describe as possibly one of the mightiest women in ancient history. She's probably worth yeah. a, a few words. Octavian marries up. He meets uh, uh, Livia Drusilla, who comes from the absolute bluest of blue and noble blood. Um, he'd already married one woman from the nobility, Scribonia, for political reasons. He then uh, divorces her when she's, the day after she gives birth to his da- their daughter. Uh, Livia's pregnant from her first husband, uh, and he marries her while she's pregnant. And she gives birth to the child when they're already married. And they stay married for 54 years. I think that Octavian was certainly in love with her and respected her, not that he didn't have affairs outside of marriage, he did. But in addition to the fact that she gave him great prestige because she was from the nobility, um, he greatly respected her and admired her, uh, and she became an enormous power broker. Um, So did Octavia, his sister, but uh, Livia became even more powerful than Octavia and lived a lot longer than Octavia. Octavia died while she was in her 50s. Livia lived to a very ripe old age, and she outlived Augustus, uh, and with him she became the face of the Roman Empire. Um, The Roman emperors, the Caesars, were very much an exercise in family government, as monarchies usually are. Uh, But Caesar uh, used his family as a dynasty, as the royal family, as it were, uh, in order to win support across the Roman Empire. And Livia was was very much part of the plan. Augustus's attempt to have children from his own blood were not successful, and in the end, he is succeeded by Livia's son from her first marriage, Tiberius. So um, she is successful in seeing that uh, the empire lasts, survives in her family. Then the next generation, some of Augustus's grandnieces and nephews do come to power, and granddaughter. We're speaking with Professor Barry Strauss about his book, Ten Caesars, Roman Emperors from Augustus to Constantine. Let's take up that stepson, Tiberius. He becomes the uh, second uh, chapter in your book, and you you call him a bit of a tyrant. Well, he was. He was a bit (laughs) of a tyrant and more than a bit of a tyrant. Now, Augustus, mind you, had been a tyrant as well. Augustus, on his way up, he fought his way to power in a series of civil wars, and it's estimated that he was responsible for the death of no less than 100 Roman senators. So Augustus led to a bloodbath. But once he became Augustus, that wasn't the name he was born with, of course. It's a name that means something like reverend, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a very clever choice of a name to solidify his power, and it has great propaganda value. Once he becomes Augustus, he switches to a much more kinder, gentler mode than he had followed as uh, the man battling his way up. Tiberius doesn't do that. Tiberius starts gentle, and he becomes harsh, and he is responsible for some judicial murders of a number of senators, which makes him deeply unpopular, definitely one of Rome's less popular emperors. But he's a very effective emperor, balancing the budget, providing good government, 
demonstrating that the dynasty will continue, uh, preparing for the succession. Um, and most important of all, it's Tiberius who advances the idea that the Roman Empire has reached its natural boundaries. Augustus had tried to conquer Germany up as far east as the Elbow River, and he had famously failed. He is responsible for an overextension that leads to an ambush in which the Romans lose three legions. So about 10% of the military manpower of their legions is destroyed in this one battle, either killed or taken captive. And that ends the Roman plan to conquer Germany east of the Rhine River, up to the Elba. There are others who still want to do it and who want to continue the campaign, but it's Tiberius who pulls the plug on it. And Tiberius, who changes Rome's perspective from what had been under Augustus, Augustus's motto was empire without end. Uh, and under Tiberius, it becomes, well, he doesn't say this in so many words, but in effect, it's as if the empire has reached its natural limits and is not going to expand farther. After Tiberius comes two names still familiar with us, Caligula and Claudius, but um, you devote your third chapter to an emperor who is one of the most infamous, uh, and, and that remains so today. Can you talk a bit about Nero? Nero, yes. Well, um, Nero was infamous and deserves to be infamous, um, but uh, the thing about Nero that surprises people is that he also had a good side and that he was very popular in his early years. Um, he's responsible for lavishing money on games and festivals and entertainment for the city of Rome, assuring the food supply, also uh, avoiding war, uh, avoiding a, uh, an all-out war with Rome's great enemy to the east, the Parthians, um, an Iranian dynasty. So all of those are on the plus side. On the minus side, he was personally a monster. Uh, he is personally responsible for the murder of his mother uh, because he couldn't stand her interfering with his pol political life and his love life above all. So he has her murdered. Like Tiberius, he is a persecutor. He's responsible for various senators and philosophers being persecuted and having to slit their own wrists, including his own tutor, uh, Seneca the Younger, a great uh, the great writer. Nero persecutes Christians. There's been some question in recent years as to whether that tradition is true, but I, along with some other scholars, believe that it is true and that he is responsible to first, for the first persecution of Christians in Rome. There's the great fire of Rome that takes place in 64. Uh, Nero fiddled while Rome burned, as the saying goes. He didn't literally fiddle, because the fiddle hadn't been invented yet, but he played the lyre and uh, sang about the destruction of Troy as he, as, as he watched Rome burning. He then proceeded to rebuild the city um, and to build himself the greatest palace that any emperor had ever had. It was rumored at the time that he had been responsible for setting the fire because he wanted to rebuild Rome. Most scholars don't believe that nowadays, so there is a minority that do believe that rumor. He certainly wanted to rename the city after himself and to re change the name of Rome to Neropolis, Nero City. Fortunately, it didn't stick. He is also the buck stop with him when it came to bad government in the province of Judea. And it's under Nero that a great revolt breaks out in Judea uh, that ultimately is suppressed by the Romans who destroy uh, the Second Temple in 
uh, Jerusalem. As a result of all these bad things happening in the Senate, just having enough with Nero, and is also the antics of his personal life, which could fill an entire show in um, by themselves, <laughs> they bring him down, and he commits suicide on the outskirts of the city of Rome. A great and juicy story, which turns out to be largely true. I can't resist at this point injecting the story that I, I read. Maybe it was in Suetonius that when they sent the soldiers arrived to kill Nero's mother, she took a look at them and <laughs> as they're about to unsheath their swords, she says, "All right, yeah, strike here," pointing down her, at her uterus, saying, "This born Nero." Yes, strike here. Yes, famous last words. Um, really remarkable. Well, his misrule leads to a coup. After he's murdered, the leadership of the empire is tossed up for grabs. Uh, the year 67 AD uh, had four different emperors. And at this point, a commoner manages to seize the prize and certainly not be the last one to do so. But uh, tell us a bit about Vespasian. Vespasian is remarkable because he is the first emperor who has no connection to the Roman nobility whatsoever. Uh, in a way, this is inherent in Augustus's policies because Augustus himself being only half a noble, um, but for various reasons, he and his followers uh, elevate uh, a number of ordinary people, slaves and ex-slaves, rise to very high positions in the Roman government. So maybe it's not all that shocking that a commoner uh, should uh, be able to become emperor. He was one of Nero's generals. He'd been a successful general in Britain, and then he is the guy who does the heavy lifting and putting down the revolt in Judea. Um, and then his supporters fight a civil war, uh, which brings him ultimately to Rome as the emperor. And as emperor, um, he prides himself on being an ordinary guy. One of the many anecdotes told about him is that he puts a tax on urinals, and his one of his sons, who is... Uh, much has much more up, upper class aspirations than Vespasian, which is the emperor's name. One of his sons says, protests and says, "Father, you shouldn't do this. It's beneath our dignity to tax urinals." And Vespasian supposedly replies, "Son, money has no smell." <laughs> can, can I inject at this point that that a French Canadian friend of mine tells me that um, that in France, public urinals are still called Vespasians. That's absolutely correct. In <laughs> France and in Italy, they're called Vespasians. Well, the finances of Rome, I think probably through Vespasian, got, got in pretty good shape at this point. But uh, after he passed, uh, well, he had two sons that took, took the throne after him. The second one didn't do so well, got assassinated. And then the Senate decides to put one of their own up on the throne, Nerva. He tries a novel approach that would serve them the, the, the empire well for a while after that. He, he picks an, a worthy adopted son, not related to him by blood nor marriage, makes him the emperor, and starts um, um, an era that we refer to as the five good emperors. Three of them earn their, own, uh, their very own chapters in your book. Uh, let, let, can we start with Trajan? Yeah, so Trajan, he comes from Spain. His family uh, was he's descended from Italian immigrants who had come Spain long before, and wealthy family, and he rises. His father is a general um, under Vespasian, and who rises to very high political office, and Trajan follows in his footsteps. He becomes uh, one of the generals of the Rhine legions, and the, the Rhine is Rome's boundary in 
in Germany. This is as far east as the Romans get. Uh, well, in southern Germany, they actually go further east than the Rhine. But in central and northern Germany, the Rhine is the the boundary. So it's a very important military position to be the general of this area. It's sort of like being the governor of a very large American state. So he's got a lot of muscle behind him. And Nerva, um, who's not a military man, decides... When he, he, Nerva's in trouble with the Roman military, he wisely decides to need Trajan as his successor. Uh, and Trajan turns out to be, in many ways, the Senate's favorite emperor. First of all, Trajan doesn't kill any senator. He absolutely treats the Senate with respect and with kid gloves. Uh, Trajan also wins friends in Rome and Italy by starting a welfare program for orphan children in, uh, in Rome and Italy. Trajan reverses uh, the pattern that Tiberius had tried to set, uh, and he expands the empire, first by successfully conquering Dacia, that is to say roughly Romania, which is a very wealthy area. It's got gold mines, and Trajan is able to finance some of his programs in Italy, including building a huge new forum in Rome uh, with this gold. And then he decides to make war on the Parthian Empire and to conquer Iraq. He does successfully defeat them and marches all the way to the Persian Gulf. But the next year, Iraq rises in rebellion. Uh, Iraq is an, is an anachronism. The ancient name, of course, is Mesopotamia. Mm-hmm. Rises in rebellion, uh, and Trajan loses virtually everything that he had conquered. He then becomes ill he has a stroke, he's a bitter man, he has to go back to to Rome. His wife and sister are with him in the east, not on the battlefield, but they've gone east with him in the city, and Trajan dies on the way back to Rome. He dies in a city in, on the Turkish coast, an obscure place, and his, uh, his bones and ashes are brought back to Rome and buried at the base of the column he had built celebrating his victories in Dacia. I should say that um, the Seneca is in the title of Optimus Princeps, the best prince, uh, the best leader that Rome had had ever had, uh, for all the reasons that I've outlined. Well, I was unaware till, you, till I read your chapter on this, that as he's passing from this world, uh, and this, this idea that there's good emperors that chose worthy successors, there's apparently a little, some doubt as to whether Trajan was intending to make Hadrian his successor right. and perhaps his wife, but Trajan's wife and leader of the guard uh, helped fix things for Hadrian. Yeah, as so often uh, in the story history of the Caesars, women, imperial women, play a huge role. And we can't be sure, but there's reason to think that Trajan's wife, Plotina, uh, overruled her husband's wishes and arranged for her favorite, Hadrian, uh, a rising star of the imperial family, to become the next emperor. And Hadrian's uh, family also came from Spain. He was Trajan's cousin. Um, he himself grew up in Italy, uh, and he was a man of vast intelligence and ambition. He was a military man, though not quite the soldier that Trajan was. His plan was to end the expansion, to basically give up the conquest of Mesopotamia. This was very controversial and very unpopular with some of Trajan's supporters. 
And Hadrian begins his reign by ordering the assassination of four of the most prominent men in the Trajanic government. This has a chilling effect on the Senate, to put it mildly. It does what it's meant to do and keeps people from rebelling. Hadrian then turns out to be a, rem- a remarkable emperor. I think he's got the most vision of anyone between Augustus and Constantine. And his vision is to change the Roman Empire into a commonwealth, into something like the EU, the European Union, if you will. He is a great admirer of the Greeks and all things Greek, and he elevates the status of the elites of the Greek world, making them senators, bringing them into the ruling class, expanding the ruling class of the empire. As far as the Roman military, he puts it on the defensive, no more conquests abroad, and he justifies this or sells it by spending a lot of his reign traveling from place to place, from military base to military base in the empire, exercising the troops, showing the flag, giving out medals and honors and financial rewards, and finally by a spectacular building program, defensive program. He extends the uh, border works in south, southern Germany. These are mostly wooden palisades on stone foundations, so they're not so impressive to see. The one that he built, which was, is so impressive, is the famous Hadrian's Wall in northern England. It's still fantastic to visit today, has a big impact on English history, English culture, and our own visions of walls up down to this day. You're listening to Radio Parallax. We need to pause a moment at this juncture, but we will be back shortly to continue our talk with Professor Barry Strauss about his book, Ten Caesars. <laughs> 